Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Junkaluta. Hello. Hello, there's two of us again. Uh, welcome back to Mark's Madness, a part of the Chunkaluta network. We read books. My name's David. I'm Prez. And Shugmani 2 is not with us today. We we kind of This is the hard part of three people. It's hard to, to schedule. So there's a lot of episodes where you get two of us. So today it's me and Prez. Um, it would be and, a lot easier if we're in like the same time zone, too. Yeah, but. that doesn't help. That doesn't help. <laughs> So, but it's okay because that's this is what we need to do. You know, we need to to take care of things this way. Um, anyway, we are getting back into reading Gramsci, the Gramsci reader. Uh, Prez is so kindly put together for us, and we are at the beginning of slide eighty nine, uh, beginning of a chapter three: factory councils and socialist democracy. Um, before we get into that, uh, we usually do current events. The only one. Um, that I really want to bring up is I think we did forget to bring up last week, the Rico charges being placed um, on the Atlanta bail fund for Atlanta protesters in cap city. So basically like they're saying you're a terrorist and you're laundering money. If you bail people out of jail and run a nonprofit. And not only is that like horrible bullying and shows like how hard they're pushing this, um, cop city and how valuable it is to them controlling you and the worst forces of reaction, all the more reason to oppose it. But that is a massive precedent for any sort of organizing and protest, especially against um, police and prisons. Um, I mean, they, you know, that's one of the most consistent ways you can support a protest that is not near you. You know, you always hear outside agitators, outside agitators, and all that bullshit when really it's normally organic local people that come and, and protest. But even when people travel and do protest, because a lot of times that does happen, um, you know, that's difficult for people. Not everyone can do it. Um, and that's even when it's good and supportive. And there's, of course, people that, that come out of town that do not listen to the local orgs there. And that can cause problems on top of all that. Um, so a way a lot of people can support it from afar when they can't make it uh, or if they're worried about, you know, not listening to the right people locally, things like that is bail funds, bail people out of, of jail after they've been arrested. And that already usually gets tolerated because that's throwing money back into the prison system. But it's it's one of those things like, you know, where we don't want to call cops for 90 uh, percent of situations. And most of the time we don't and we think of alternatives, but there are times you still got to because that's how the system is structured. It's made that they're your only choice. This, these bail funds are the, the only choice to keep people from being like stuck in jail, awaiting trial and having their lives destroyed. And now that's being come after. Um, so that is incredibly terrifying. That is, again, we've talked about, you know, what is the difference even between liberalism and fascism? And, and we're in Gramsci here where Gramsci talks about that as a state of, of hegemony. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, where is the difference between that and fascism, right? So um, that's the biggest thing I would want to bring up with current events. Do you have anything, Prez? Uh, not so much a current event, just something that Apple released their new iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, to stick with the whole Huawei thing. And I'm just mentioning that because I found out that, uh, so if you're a tech nerd, uh, the only thing Apple changed was they raised their prices on all of their phones. They reduced the weight of their iPhone 
Pro Max or whatever the fuck the most expensive. Oh model yeah, is. the super duper one. Yeah, by a single gram. Okay. And <laughs> D, and they gave it a USB C port, so they joined the rest of the world. Oh, and for not being proprietary, they're going to charge you an arm and a leg. Well, so the EU actually essentially said, unless you give iPhones a USB C port, uh, you're going to be banned from selling in the EU. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Good on the EU for that yeah, one. Yeah, for once they did something right. Yeah, but yeah. For that's, all that's... this innovation, do you want to guess how much Apple's R&D budget was last year? Ridiculous. Yeah. I don't even want to guess. I don't want to know these numbers. It was $26 billion. <laughs> that is That is like five missile exploded weather balloons that I don't yes. want to, I don't want to do that. No. Now, that's now too much. Guess, guess how much Huawei's R&D budget was last year. Mm. And keep in mind that they came out with a a sanction avoiding phone that you can make calls and text message from an airplane. Let's say let's say 5 billion. 22. Okay. That's still yeah. and that makes more sense. I was just you the way you were saying it. I thought it was going to be a stark difference. I mean, that's I would say. I mean, that is a stark difference. Yeah. But I was just I was like they, shot they in the dark. Reinvented nano chips. Yeah, I, I straight up have no idea how much research and development for phones got. Now I do. I, I have a better idea, but yeah. So, like, what the fuck is Apple spending this on? Anyway, that's my news. Not much. <laughs> not much news. But they're probably um, spending it on researching how to make lower their costs making the phones oh, how to yeah. negotiate with foxconn to make it cheaper how to how to send their manufacturing plans to to india mm-hmm. instead of china without pissing off china more yep um but rico charges have been used pretty much since their inception to both go after the mob how they were originally used but also to go after labor by mm-hmm. associating labor organizations with the mob um so yeah i mean i want to last yeah rico charges to attack the left this is not new it's just this on a bail fund means that it, it basically opens the door for any time you do any sort of fundraising as a nonprofit. oh yeah uh, with any political bent whatsoever if this gets upheld they can come after you oh which, and it's gonna get upheld because rico charges very rarely don't get up <laughs> don't yeah. get upheld and if you if people have gone through the dates and like they're they're backdating this shit to go to like people who were on the street during the George Floyd protests before, oh, yeah. before cops said he was proposed yeah. yeah 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 so oh god mm-hmm. so I mean that that's basically what they're they're backdating to is the the protests of uh, the killing of of Rayshard Brooks who had simply fallen asleep um, in a fast food restaurant. So during, during the protest. So yeah, um, very fucked up and terrifying. Um, and with that at breakneck speed, not grinding gears at all, we're going to jump into the reading. Uh, so like I said earlier, we're starting on slide 89, uh, the top chapter three factory councils and socialist democracy. Uh, introduction in 1919 in, introduction is like a little header inside the, the chapter in 1919, the situation in Italy was characterized by acute labor conflicts and a weak state. 
both the industrial bourgeoisie and the labor movement had emerged strengthened after the war. Strike activity reached unprecedented levels and took an increasingly political character. The model of Soviet Russia was powerful. In 1919 came the conquest of an eight-hour day and a national minimum wage. In the summer, there were widespread street riots against the high cost of living. And just, you know, another reminder that eight-hour workdays and minimum wage are things that were fought for, not bestowed upon us by the ruling class. Um, you know, they, the a bomb was set off in, in uh, Haymarket Square in Chicago on some cops for a reason. Um, it was in this year that Gramsci and a handful of others, Paul Miro Tog- Togliati, Umberto Terracini, Angelo Tosca, set up in Turin a weekly newspaper, La Ardine Nuovo, The New Order. From June 1919, its animating idea, largely Gramsci's inspiration, was that of the Factory Council. The point was to transform the factory workshop committees, commissioni interne, um, that had emerged during the war into assemblies of elected delegates, which would be capable of taking over the means of production at the point of production, fulfilling simultaneously on the model of the Russian Soviets, the economic role of direct workers' management of the plan, and the political function of democratic self-government. These factory councils would in turn elect delegates to a ward committee, uh, Comitato Rianale, whose function would be to coordinate all workers in a given area and become democratic committees for the whole community. Similar organizations were to be developed among the peasantry. I think that gives some context a little bit too. We we talked about the the war of position versus the war of maneuver, and Gramsci believing that um, you know the Russian Revolution and the establishment of Soviet Russia, um, and later the Soviet Union, uh, was the last war of maneuver because, according to this, Gramsci tried that, you know, and it failed. And then there's the question of why did it fail? Um, by the end of 1919, uh, the Ordino Nuovo proposals had been adopted by 16,000 strong Turin branch of FIOM. Do we know what FIOM is, Prez? I was just reading up to see if it was in there, but no. Okay. I'm guessing it's the worker council. Yeah, the metal the metal workers union is the next word. <laughs> oh, oh, well, duh. <laughs> I stopped. <laughs> that again, once again, <laughs> the book reads stupid. That's Mark's Bander's tradition. Shut up and let the book read. Uh, the Metal Workers Union and the local section of the PSI. The formation of factory councils in the city's big engineering plants, Fiat, Lancia, etc., frightened the employees in a, to a, lock, a lockout in March 1920. The workers responded in April with a general strike involving over 200,000 people. The action, explicitly about the political principle of workers' control in the factories, was widely considered to have been the high point in Turin of the two red years, Bien- Bienio Rosso, of 1919 to 1920. 
The strike was defeated not only because of well-organized response by the employers who sent in troops and hired volunteer strike breakers, but also because the leaders of the PSI and GCL, the Reformist Trade Union Confederation, refused to back it. In September 1920 came the occupation of factories throughout northern Italy, most notably in Milan, Turin, and Genoa. The occupation followed the breakdown of negotiations over a new national wage agreement in the engineering industry. The occupied factories carried on production under worker control, while the police and army, although they sur- while the police and army, although they surrounded the factories, did not intervene. Prime Minister Giolitti deliberately refrained from ordering the troops to break the occupation, preferring a more tactical approach. He set up a committee to study the problem and promised to introduce a parliamentary bill establishing worker control over industry, thus giving the reformists a semblance of satisfaction and taking the ground away from the revolutionaries. The PSI and GCL leaders met in Milan from 9 to 11 September and decided by 591,245 votes to 409,569 with 93,000 absentations to limit the aims of the workers' actions to winning recognition by the factory owners of trade union control in the plants. The factories were evacuated and work was resumed for the owners of 4th October 1920, or for the owners on October 4th, 1920. The end of the occupation of the factories marked a turning point in the class struggle in Italy. By January 1921, a concerted employer's counteroffensive was underway. With increased workplace discipline, victimizations, and sackings of the leaders in the 1920s actions, there was also now an increasing alignment between employers. Their confidence in the government further weakened by Giolitti's refusal to use heavy hand and the rising fascist movement. The factory councils were ultimately destroyed in the course of the fascist reaction. The idea of the factory councils drew both on contemporary communist sources, Lenin's ideas on dual power and those of Rosa Luxemburg and the Spartacus periodical Arbitir Rat Workers' Council, as well as on revolutionary syndicalism, uh, Georgia Sorel's writings in France, the shop stewards movement in Britain and the industrial workers world, the Wobblies in the United States and elsewhere. These syndicalist elements in the factory movement were criticized in the, within the PSI, both from the right, the reformists in the GCL and from the left. For example, Amadeo Bordaiga, leader of the other main communist faction within the PSI said the movement was a form of economic gradualism and predicted that the councils would, like trade unions, be reabsorbed by the employers as corporate as corporatist organizations. He also accused the Ordine Nuovo group of underemphasizing the central role of a tightly disciplined political party in leading the revolution. Gramsci later accepted some of these criticisms. He said that at the time he had not sufficiently connected the factory council movement to the party, whose role was left somewhat nebulous. He wrote in 1925 that the Ordine Nuovo group's concentration on mass action had placed it in a position of inferiority within the general organization of the party. He was also self-critical of the group for not having organized during the Bieno Rosso, a national faction within the PSI, which could have broken a grip on the reformists in the party and the trade unions and prevented its own political isolation. Uh, see the prison works number two, page one eighty nine. 
he nevertheless asserted that there was an essential difference between factory councils and trade unions and repudiated Bordiga's emphasis on strict party leadership from above at the expense of mobilization and organization of the working class from below. It was this emphasis on working class autonomy and socialist democracy, which constituted the most original and powerful aspect of the factory councils movement. By contrast, one of the major limitations of the movement, and a key reason for its defeat, as Gramsci would later argue, was its relative geographical isolation. The movement was confined to the industrial north, and although it did seem able to build an alliance with the peasantry in Piedmont in April 1920, it failed to forge political links with the poor peasants of the south. The Ordine Nuovo group emphasized the importance of building a platform of common action with the peasants. See Gramsci's article, Workers and Peasants, Section 4 but this platform was not constructed at a national level. This was one of the principal sources of the movement's vulnerability in the face of the employer's counteroffensive and the rise of fascism. The lesson of its defeat was to underlie one of the main areas of Gramsci's strategic rethinking from 1923 onwards. And I think this, you know, it, it's something to consider with the the unity of the party versus the worker councils and and why Gramsci, you know, I brought up the the war maneuver versus the war position and why the war position was so important to Gramsci, right? Because you have this essentially tailed disorganized mass movement uh, with a lot of reformists and reaction that can just pivot away and and spell defeat and allow for the rise of fascism um, but people are, are you know leadership communist leadership has to come from the people right and so what you really have to do is you have to change the cultures and change the mind so that when that leadership emerges it can have strong ties with these mass movements um that's that's basically what i'm putting together from this episode contrasted to what we have today um, contrasted to, you know, just general, um, you know, history of communist movements. Um, I don't know how you feel about that press, but that's, that's how it rings in my head. That was on mute. Uh, <laughs> uh, so also just to put the numbers in perspective, like we saw 200,000, 400,000, and then we saw it a few different cities um, combined the main cities that were on strike during the, during this time period had a population of about one and a half million people, give or take some. So at its peak, about four to 500,000 people, maybe 600,000, depending on who was counting were on strike. So imagine if you're the PSI and a third of the population is striking. Um, And that's not including the people who are out there also supporting the strike, like the, the family members and all of that stuff, like just the workers themselves, a third of the whole population, pretty much that whole city was shut down on strike. Yeah, I mean that that's a true general strike right there. That's that's as much as as you could ever have one. Like even these days like generally about a quarter to a third, maybe 40% of the population is working. 
just based on who's retired, who's a child, who's mm-hmm. like disabled, who's sick, all of that kind of stuff. So like if back then a good third of the population was on strike actively, you had a lot more of the population like ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a lot of Gramsci's self-criticism we're going to see, especially with the Southern question later, but also when we read his stuff on the modern prince and then elsewhere. And then in this uh, also actually in this section, we're going to see him going like, what the fuck did we do? Why did we fuck this up so bad? Yeah. Um, <laughs> why, why did we have this really powerful movement that we weren't able to direct? And I think that's part of the most interesting thing about Gramsci was that he is probably one of the honestly smartest theorists around Um that you know we're always so focused on the ones who won so like ho chi minh mao stalin lenin they all wrote great stuff but then uh gramsci probably equally or superior to them in terms of a theoretician didn't quite get there in terms of revolution and then we can debate whether or not that makes him an actually good theoretician But when you go through his writings, you can see him as time goes by, especially after he gets arrested. Um, He goes, he goes through a whole self-crit session and goes, where did we fuck up? And how can the party actually succeed in getting the people to a revolutionary phase going forward? Yeah. Um, Well, and and we think of of Gramsci as, as losing, but you know, in the midst of World War II, they did rise up and, and topple Mussolini. And if it wasn't yeah. for, you know, a lot of Western interference that, that you know, Italy might have been communist too. So it's not that it that it was someone that, that you know, totally lost. This was a movement that, that grew and corrected its mistakes and just wasn't able to overcome um, the intersection of earlier mistakes and outside interference. Two things that we're going to have to be overcome. You know, I mean, you can, the, the difference between context and excuses, right. Is excuses (laughs) allow you to not fix things. Whereas context allows you to understand what is wrong. So that when you correct the problem, you're truly correcting it rather than, you know, chasing red herrings with false blame. Right. Um, And so, you know, where that becomes context versus an excuse, you know, that's, that's debatable, but this is not, this is not someone that just completely lost. You know, this is someone that you can consider to a certain degree, one along the lines of Lenin and Ho Chi Minh and Mao, just not to the same degree um, because of circumstance. If he lived through prison, man, just a few more years. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, God damn it. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing. Like Lenin had failed health later in life, but was able to, to, you know, survive prison and escape and basically hide out. <laughs> you know, when he had, when he shaved his little um, uh, beard the one and distinguishing feature about him, he was able the, to hide. He was able to hide his his little beard and hat and wear a hat. Yep. Um, but uh, but yeah, so there's you know there's more to it than that than you know was the the philosophy good or bad, especially if we're looking at it as Gramsci learns and learning from the mistakes with Gramsci. You know, 
Um, I guess I can take another section because it's a pretty short section. So we're going to move on to workers' democracy, um, section one of uh, factory councils and socialist democracy. An urgent problem today faces every socialist with a keen sense of the historical responsibility that rests on the working class and on the party representing the critical and active consciousness of the mission of this class. How are the immense social forces unleashed by the war to be harnessed? How are they to be disciplined given a political form which has the potential to develop normally and continuously into the skeleton of the socialist state in which the dictatorship of the proletariat will be embodied? How can the present be welded to the future so that the, while satisfying the urgent necessities of one, we may work effectively to create and anticipate the other? The aim of this article is to stimulate thought and action. It is an invitation to the best and most conscious workers to reflect on the problem and collaborate, each in the sphere of his own competence and activity, towards its solution, focusing the attention on their comrades and associations on it. Only common solidarity in a work of clarification, persuasion, and mutual education will produce concrete, constructive actions. Again, only common solidarity in a work of clarification, persuasion, and mutual education will produce concrete, constructive actions. Okay, we have to be there for each other, and we have to help people understand and come to this movement and educate them on, on you know, where, where our differences lie and what is important about those differences and solidarity through those differences rather than just, you know, indifference. The socialist state already exists potentially in the institutions of social life characteristic of the exploited working class. To link these institutions, coordinating and ordering them into a highly centralized hierarchy of competencies and powers, while respecting the necessary autonomy and articulation of each, is to create a genuine workers' democracy here and now. A workers' democracy in effective and active opposition to the bourgeois, bourgeois state and prepare to replace it here and now in all its essential functions of administering and controlling the national heritage. The workers' movement today is led by the Socialist Party and Confederation of Labor, CGL, but for the great mass of workers, the exercise of the social power of the party and confederation is achieved indirectly by prestige and enthusiasm, authoritarian pressure, and even inertia. The party's influence grows daily, spreading to previously unexplored popular strata. It wins consent and a desire to work effectively for the advent of communism among groups and individuals hitherto absent from the political struggle. These disorderly and chaotic energies must be given a permanent form and discipline. They must be absorbed, organized, and strengthened. The proletarian and semi-proletarian class must be transformed into an organized society that can educate itself, gain experience, and acquire responsible consciousness to, of the obligations that will fall to the classes achieving state power. It will take the Socialist Party and the trade unions years, even decades of effort, to absorb the whole of the working class. These two institutions will not be identified immediately with the proletarian state. In fact, the communist republics, they have continued to exist independently of the state, with the party functioning as a driving force, and the unions as instruments for supervision and achievement of limited reforms. 
the party must carry on its role as the organ of communist education, as the furnace of faith, the depository of doctrine, the supreme power harmonizing the organized and disciplined forces of the working class and peasantry, leading them towards the ultimate goal. It is just because it must strictly carry out this task that the party cannot throw open its doors to an invasion of new members who are not accustomed to the exercise of responsibility and discipline. But the social life of the working class is rich and and the very institutions and activities which need to be developed, fully organized and coordinated into broad and flexible systems that is capable of absorbing and disciplining the entire working class. So basically, like, it's not just a chase for more members. Why don't we have more members? Why don't we have more members? We just get bigger, 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 bigger. Like, you, you've got to understand what's it for, you know. It doesn't help to have political power unless you're understanding what the political power is for and carrying that out. Uh, we've been talking about that for since the beginning of Mark's badness, when when all the there was the Bernie movement and all the reformists and and you know how do we fold into the Democrats and stuff like that. So you know this is our our way into power and DSA is our way into power and it's like. What is that power doing? What are you doing with that power? Is it power or numbers? You know, um, and so yeah, I mean, you have to you have to think about that, right? The movement has to have power, you know, not not you personally because this is this is for all of us, but also not just an idea of the broad masses because socialism is incredibly democratic, but minds have been subjected to fascism. Um, to capitalist ideology their whole lives and, you know, they need to be educated, right? Um, this is the whole, like, I don't need to read theory. I, I know my oppression every day type stuff. It's like, well, there's other people that do their oppression every day and they actually examined this and they wrote this down and spread this and that was what was effective, you know? And and we've seen that time and time again. Um, this is the whole whole reason for theory kind of idea. Um, the workshop with its internal commissions, the socialist clubs, the peasant communities, these are the centers of proletarian life. We should be working in, we should be working indirectly. The internal commissions are organs of workers' democracy, which must be freed from the limitations imposed upon them by the entrepreneurs and infused with a new life and energy. Today, internal commissions limit the power of the capitalist factory and perform functions of arbitration and discipline. Tomorrow, developed and enriched, they must be the organs of proletarian power, replacing the capitalist in all his useful functions of management and administration. The power should proceed at once to the election of vast assemblies of delegates, chosen from their best and most conscious comrades under the slogan, All Power in the Workshop to the Workshop Committees, together with its complement, all state power to the workers and peasants councils. You can definitely tell they, they had just heard all power to the Soviets and seen that work with this. The clubs in agreement with the urban party section should carry out a field, should carry out a survey, sorry, of the working class forces in their area and become the seat of the ward council of workshop delegates. The ganglion so weird word to use here. The ganglion coord- coordinating and centralizing all the proletarian energies in the ward. The electoral system could 
vary according to the size of the workshops. The aim, however, should be to elect one delegate for every 15 workers, divided into categories, as is done in English factories, and ending up through a series of elections with a committee of factory delegates representing every aspect of work, manual workers, clerical workers, technicians, etc. The ward the ward committee should also seek to incorporate delegates from other categories of workers living in the ward, waiters, cab drivers, tramway men, railway men, road sweepers, private employees, clerks, and others. The ward committee should be an expression of the whole working class living in the ward, an expression that is legitimate and authoritative that can enforce spontaneously delegated discipline that is backed with powers and can order the immediate and complete cessation of all work throughout the ward. The ward committees would grow into urban commissariats controlled and disciplined by the Socialist Party and the Craft Federations. So here is, this is where he's, we can see the idea that trade unionism is, is uh, not very useful because it divides the workers into, you know, the cab drivers work union or the, the UPS union or, or whatever, the nurses union. You should have a union that is based in your neighborhood that will allow for more effective organizing. This yeah. The whole idea there. The, the other thing here too, because it, it feels like there's a lot of talk about democracy and how to organize democracy. And this is something we we've always run into, you know, whether it's a, a bourgeois revolution that claims democracy, but they're really full of shit. They just, you know, want to forward white supremacy, but they certainly, you know, have, have inherited models, um, based on indigenous confederations that they colonized uh, to different organizations of socialist democracies from, you know, the Soviets uh, to the way they run elections in like, say, Cuba, where parties, you know, don't really matter in the same way to the ideas they had in Yugoslavia um, with the different histories there and ethnicities and kind of rotating power there. Um, and of course, the tragedy that befell that when it just kind of left a little bit of a, a ethnic jockeying kind of in place, I want to say. Um, when it was meant to be more fair, you know, it's, it's always a difficult way to wrestle with making sure everyone is represented versus making sure that the, the people are looking out for everyone's interest and, and able to act on that. Um, and this kind of fits into like, how do you organize workers for revolution? And the answer, at least in that case is a little more clear is, is, uh, a party with democratic, centralism at its head rather than these different trade unions would just leave you broken and unorganized and at odds and basically in weakened coalitions rather than in one unified front. Because a, a revolution obviously is very different than, than pure administration. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the danger of, being trade unionist, you end up becoming kind of a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, and it doesn't happen, uh, help to be a bureaucracy. It's one thing, again, to be a bureaucracy with administration because then maybe you're inefficient, but there's a structure in place that can hold in the long term. But to be a bureaucracy, and obviously there's major downsides with bureaucracy in that sense too, and, and I don't encourage it. But 
bureaucracy and revolution uh that just that that takes away you know guidance and enthusiasm and and, and drives you into a stalemate right and that's that's how you then you weaken yourself you weaken um your radicalism um and then you just wind up basically you know ossifying as in uh, something that upholds the institution or just has its own societal role rather than being something revolutionary well, yeah, I mean, the, the bureaucracy is always going to be necessary. Even just having a chain of command is a form of bureaucracy. But, like, when you bureaucratize trade unions into some kind of trade unionism, it becomes like uh, a corporatist organization rather than a, an effective means of workplace democracy. Uh it's it's kind of very easy to become a uh, like what we see today a bureaucratic system of just getting another three yeah. percent cost of living adjustment rather than something that's more radical. Yeah, it's good space it, for more it, radicalism. Yeah, it's good for workers to to make sure they have you know better raises, health insurance, more sick days, whatever, but. It, you know, more six days, more sick days is not a revolution. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that's your finish line now when, when you have that kind of bureaucracy, when you, when you fall into trade unionism. So. Yeah. Such a system of workers, democracy integrated with corresponding peasants organizations would give the masses a permanent structure and discipline. It would be a magnificent school of political and administrative experience, and it would and would involve the masses down to the last man, accustoming them to tenacity and perseverance, and to thinking of themselves as an army in the field which needs a strict cohesion, if it is not to be destroyed and reduced to slavery. Each factory would make up one or more of the regiments of this army, which would have its own NCOs, its own liaison services, officer corps, and general staff, with all powers being delegated by free election and not imposed in in an authoritarian manner. Meetings held inside the factory together with ceaseless propaganda and persuasion by the most conscious elements should affect a radical transformation of the workers' mentality, should make the masses better equipped to exercise power, and finally should diffuse a conscious consciousness of the rights and obligations of comrade and worker that is both concrete and effective, because spontaneously gener- because spontaneously generated from living experience. Did I miss a word or does that sound wonky at the end? That, that did sound wonky, but I don't think you missed a word. Okay. As we said before, these brief proposals are put forward only to s- stimulate thought and action. Every aspect of the problem deserves special study, detailed elucidation, coherent extension, and integration. But the concrete and complete solution to the problems of of socialist living can only arise from communist practice. Collective discussion, which sympathetically alters men's consciousness, unifies them and inspires them to industrious enthusiasm. 
To tell the truth, to arrive together at the truth, is a communist and revolutionary act. The formula dictatorship of the proletariat must cease to be a mere formula, a flourish of revolutionary revolutionary rhetoric. Whoever wills the end must will the means. The dictatorship of the proletariat represents the establishment of a new proletarian state which channels the institutional experiences of the oppressed class and transforms the social activity of the working class and peasantry into a wide and powerfully organized system. This state cannot be improvised. The Russian Bolshevik communists labored labored for eight months to broadcast and concretize their their slogan, All Power to the Soviets. And the Russian workers had been familiar with the so- with Soviets since 1905. Italian communists must, must treasure this Russian experience and economize on time and effort. The work of reconstruction itself will demand so much time and effort that every day and every act should be dedicated to it. Unsigned but lit- written in collaboration with Palmiro Togliatti. Uh, <laughs> I get that button, but uh, no, I mean that's uh, that's really important, and I think almost you can almost see a little bit of a, a, a mistake here because you got we talked about too, like the the all state power to the workers and peasants councils and the all power to the workshop committees sounding a lot like. You know, you definitely, I definitely heard that and was like, oh, that's all power to the Soviets. But, you know, for the Italian situation, of course, that was brought up a few paragraphs later. Um, you know, we've we've talked about you, you can't take the Sardinian and, and place them in our time. And, and I think I think there's a little bit where they went a little too hard, like trying to in at least for them, they were in Europe, too. They had just come off the same world war. They had seen general strikes. And, you know, this was like a, a year at, or two years after the, the Russian Revolution. Um, um, so, sorry, my son needed me for something. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I, I think there's a little bit too much of, of, of trying to copy it on there. And, and they even said, you know, we must economize the time and, and effort. And they went for a big, a big push. And sometimes you have to you know, work a little harder maybe to understand um, your surroundings, your context, your situation, and adapt things to that. And, and you do the work of, of economizing time by adapting it to what you need without losing that revolution. You know, that's something that, like, say, here in the United States, I say here in the United States, I know you're not in the United States right now, but for many of our listeners, and, and here in the United States, you know, um, prison abolition, um, you know, anti-imperialism. Um, those are... I those mean, are Europe, that stuff is still here. <laughs> What's ahead? Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, like, it's the the, the racial aspects of it and, and some of the history of, of policing here and the different characters of, of policing here. You know, that's stuff that you have to adapt to. And that's that's why we're throwing into the current events, oh, crap, they're throwing RICO charges on, on bail funds, you know. Um... And and again, you know, even in prison abolition, right, the the efforts just to end cash bail, you know, that's a reform, but that's also a, a revolutionary step. 
Um, and so understanding where that fits and where people understand that and where it is a struggle to change minds against the propaganda and media and things like that. Um, that's something that we have to incorporate basically from what Gramsci learned. You know, we have to learn from Gramsci's mistakes, not not remake them. That, um, you know, next time we'll be looking at section two of that conquest of the state. But for now, uh, we'll be coming back to you next week. Um, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of us uh, at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter or oh, what was the new Chunkaluta one? Um, at Chunkaluta Network, I think. Instead of at Chunkaluta973. Um, but it's definitely Chunkaluta973 at gmail.com. Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. Uh, we also have both discords and you can find your way into the Mark's Madness discord uh, through the Mark's Madness uh, Twitter bio or X bio, whatever it is, is Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah. And hold on one second. Here. And um, uh, in the meantime, you know, we're still working our uh, winter drive. Uh, that's going to go towards a wheelchair. That's going to go towards, uh, a building structure, uh, wood to keep people warm. Uh, GoFundMe will be in the show notes. Uh, that's very important work uh, that that Shugmani 2 is heading up. Um, anything to add to that, Prez? Uh, no. All right. So with that, this has been Mark's Madness Pod, part of Chunkalucha Network. We read books. My name's David. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.